hold hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brandon Storr. I'm Ian Gibbs. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun is set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. It's Tuesday, August 22nd. This is episode 15. And we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing pretty good, Brennan. How about you? I am also good, thanks. Happy Excellent. to be home from the road. Yes. Happy to have the skies back. Uh, yeah, no kidding. I can breathe again, which is a good thing. Yeah, I am fully in support of breathing. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what the hell we're talking about, the province of BC is in the middle of, well, a forest fire crisis, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The fire, fire is burning all over the province, and the ash is really settling over the cities and, and enveloping everything in this kind of post-apocalyptic haze. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you can't really see the sky or you couldn't. And uh, breathing really sucked. Well, I did enjoy the um, the red blood moons. That was kind of cool. Oh, yeah, no, that's great. Creepy, yeah. cool. But yeah, the not breathing thing, that wasn't yeah. cool. The Book of Revelation vistas were novel. <laughs> But I like breathing. Now, you were closer to the smoke than we were. Uh, how, how was your trip? Oh, the trip? No, it was fine. Yeah, I was back in Revelstoke for uh, for Dave Rooney's funeral. Right. I spent a night in Kamloops. And I tell you, as bad as we have it here on the island for smoke, or at least as bad as we did, it's cleared now, Kamloops was a whole other level. I heard like uh, air quality out of 10, Kamloops was 37. Or 49. Th- Holy cats. Yeah, they were at 49. Not when I got there, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. It was down to, I think maybe nine or 12, but you couldn't walk more than half a block without feeling lightheaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we actually had a, a little bit of a, a creepy story from Kamloops, nothing major. Mm-hmm. What happened? I've heard stories about this hill in Kamloops where uh, at least one person has seen clusters of shadow people. Okay. My cousin had some time, so he showed me the area. Now, he had been with someone who had seen these things, and she had seen them near the top of the hill. So if I was going to see anything, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's where I expected to experience it. However, I felt the heaviness basically as soon as we started ascending. Mm-hmm. I felt this oppressive feeling. Yeah. And then towards the spot where she had seen these things, we started getting radio static in the car. Oh. Which would have been normal if not for the fact that the tuner was set to USB input. It was oh, not set to radio. That's not cool. No. <laughs> that's not cool. So something was going through the speakers. Something was coming through the speakers. There was some kind of some kind of low white noise. Yikes. And so we uh, we kept going for a little bit, but eventually I, I personally became uncomfortable. I started to feel, yeah. again, a really oppressive sense of uh, this is not a good place to be right now. Yeah. So yeah. we pulled around and, and took off. So n- nothing real dramatic, nothing real fancy, but it was uh, it was definitely noticeable. Hmm. How about you? You were in Seattle over the last weekend? Yeah, that no. Was, I had a little bit of a creepy experience, but it was more self-induced than anything. Yes. I, <laughs> I uh, was going to walk from the motel up to the grocery store, which I had driven past. And, you know, I thought, oh, no big deal. I drove past. It's not that far. But I went out around, I don't know, I think it was like 11. And the road, well, it turned out, A, it was uphill, which I did not realize. Mistake number one. Dri- yeah, driving down it. Two, I was in like shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops, so I wasn't going anywhere fast. And three, the road was lined with woods, like pretty dense woods. To set the scene here, this road scholar sitting across the <laughs> table from me went for a long walk in the woods well, alone oh, at night. Okay, I didn't think it was going to be that long. I was beside a road, which at first I thought was good, and then I thought Nothing bad, bad has ever happened next to a road. No, a large road. Of, and oh yeah, I didn't take my phone. Brought my full wallet, though. 
Oh, that's good. Yeah, because they can you identify know, your body. Exactly. That's that's kind of what I thought. So I, I got about. I was thinking it was like a five minute walk. It was more like thirty minutes one way. And <laughs> thirty minutes one way. You didn't tell me that when you told me. Yeah, 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 uphill. And then you had to go uphill because the store is quite isolated, like kind of like a Costco kind of situation. Like it's really, really large. Right. And it's in the middle of, well. And it disappeared nowhere. after midnight. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Taking with it everyone inside. That's right. So I got in there and I'm like, okay, well, that's good. But I, honestly, I, I couldn't stop thinking, A, someone could pull over and shoot me because, you know, the States. It's true. And uh, B, I kept thinking about all those books you read about people who disappear into the woods. <laughs> those missing 411. Missing yeah. 411. That was going through my head, which was not helpful. And I thought, well, okay, if I make it there, and I was like convincing myself it's going to be just fine. When I come back, it'll be downhill, and I know where I'm going. So we should be good. Uh, well, you made it back alive, and that's the important thing. <laughs> Definitely. That's, uh, if anyone's going to kill you, it's me. Thank you. No problem. That's comforting. <laughs> I try. I know. All right. So on this episode, we have a guest, uh, one you were particularly excited about. Absolutely. The guest is Richard Estep, co-author of Spirits of the Cage, True Accounts of Living in a Haunted Medieval Prison. And honestly, I love this book. Yeah, you really did. You, yeah. I mean, you've you've enjoyed all the books we've done on the show, but you would not shut up about this book. <laughs> you actually read it <laughs> a, 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 before I did. Yeah. And I'm the one who does the interview. I, I read this book over the course of about 24 hours. I loved it because, it, first off, it's a great story. Right. Uh, the setup is amazing. And what I really loved, the way they set it up was you've got Richard telling his experience as an investigator with his team. And then you flip to the lady who kind of experienced all of this, and she tells her side of the story. So her story is sort of set in the past, and it unfolds the story, and Richard's parallels along. Coming up after the break, Richard Estep will be on the line talking about demons, witches, and his investigation into the haunted medieval prison, The Cage. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Ghost Story, guys. I'm here tonight with Richard Esteb, paranormal investigator and author of books such as In Search of the Paranormal, The Haunting of Asylum 49, and The World's Most Haunted Hospitals. He's here with us to talk about his brand new book, Spirits of the Cage, True Accounts of Living in a Haunted Medieval Prison, co-authored with Vanessa Mitchell. Richard, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I, I got to say, uh, this book, we've, we've had a few authors on the show now, but this is the first book that Ian, my co-host, will not shut up about. He truly loves this book. Oh, great. Thank you so much. I, uh, I'm really glad to hear that. And so if you could just take, take it, start right at the beginning, if you could tell us what is the cage, what, what, uh, before we go anywhere else, the spirits are in the cage. What is the cage? So the cage is, is actually a generic term they used to have in the uh, 1500s for a, a prison that was used to confine people such as witches, those accused of witchcraft. So the cage itself is a fairly small brick building, no bigger than the average living room. Since then, they've built a house around it. They've built a kitchen off it. They've built an upstairs with bedrooms. But the cage itself dates back to 1580, and it was used to incarcerate those that were accused of witchcraft during the English equivalent of Salem, the witch trials. And so now the cage, of course, is, uh, is still standing. It's now a private home, is it not? Or part of a private home? It is, although it's not being lived in. Um, Vanessa was my co-author. She owns the cage. She lived there. She was chased out 
by the paranormal activity inside the house, she finally ended up just, just kind of breaking really and, and leaving when her young baby was threatened. So she does, she does still own it, but won't live in it and uh, has tried to sell it several times, but nobody really wants to buy the property. No one's interested in an old cursed house. How strange. It's not one that you would want to live in. And it's interesting because she actually, uh, along with some local historians, have looked at the property records of the cage going back to centuries. And this place has never had an owner for more than a three-year stretch. And many of them left after six weeks to three months. Fascinating. Like clockwork, yeah. Have you investigated the history of the property beyond the point at which it became a prison? Is this possibly something which is uh, a haunting that has to do with the land as well? Or do you believe this is tied directly to the fact that it was a prison? No, I think that uh, you're absolutely right. There's a variation of that. It was priory land directly across the street from the cage is an old priory. Um, but prior to that, the town St. Oseth is on the coast of England and was subject to a number of Viking attacks. So you had a lot of brutality, a lot of murder in this area, historically speaking. But even up to the present day, one of the former owners, and we're now talking within the past 10 to 15 years, took his own life by hanging himself from the stairwell in the cage. So there is quite a lot of tragedy and quite a lot of emotion associated with the property itself and the area in general. And so your co-author, Vanessa, she moved right into this. Now, was she unaware of the property's history before purchasing it? So it was her dream home, and she did know of some of its history, although not really any of the intensity, you know, just how bad things were. Right. Uh, She saw this, what looks like a beautiful storybook cottage, and um, decided I had to have that. It's, It's the house of my dreams. And it turned out to be the house of her nightmares, which sounds very stereotypical, but the stuff that she went through while living in this house just curdles the blood. And that's a large part of what we wrote about in her portion of the book. Uh, She gets to tell her story from the inside, and it was not a pleasant experience for her or for her child. No, it was was, uh, frankly quite frightening. Now, if you don't mind, obviously, we don't want to give everything away, but I'm curious if you could share with us a little bit of what Vanessa endured prior to you becoming involved with the cage and, and her having to leave. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she started out on day one with the apparition of a male, a shadow figure. And she's had a number of um, not just paranormal investigators, but psychic mediums visit the cage. And many of them have told her that the figure of a man appears to be a jailer. And he's the reason that the house is still so very active, that he's holding a number of other spirits kind of um, hostage there, kind of at bay. So this guy appeared to Vanessa initially and just gave her a heck of a nasty look, if you will. And things started going bad almost immediately. She would see him in the mirror. She would see him standing there at night. And finally, what drove her out was that she found, uh, she was walking up the stairs one day. Her baby boy was in his crib upstairs in the bedroom. And she saw a different male apparition leaning over his crib, staring at her baby son. And that was it. That was when the maternal instinct kicked in. It overrode the fear. She grabbed her young son and ran from the house. But she had the usual stuff that we would attribute to poltergeist phenomena. She had her TV would turn itself on in the middle of the night. So would her CD players, her faucets, her taps would turn themselves on and start flowing water, all those kind of things. One former owner told Vanessa that she had been getting into bed one night and she felt a child climb into bed along with her. Yikes. Yeah, yikes indeed. And she heard the running of of tiny footsteps upstairs. There are multiple witnesses to a lot of this activity, found pools of blood inside the building. And one of those was found by a friend of Vanessa's who is an an infantry sergeant major. 
So this is not someone who is unused to the side of blood and also not someone who's used to making up fanciful stories. So there was just this entire catalog of stuff that, that would go on and it built and built and built to a fever pitch. Now, you mentioned the electronics coming on, and that reminded me of a story from the book I found particularly unnerving, and that was the Growler. Do you mind telling us the, the story of the Growler, or at least her first encounter with it? Absolutely. And, and that's one of those um, phenomena, those audible phenomena that you get in cases where it seems there is an intent to instill fear. So coming downstairs one morning, Vanessa again found the TV was on, had been turned on in the middle of the night. Uh, the CD player was on, lights were on. She'd shut all this stuff down, of course, the night before, as she would always do. And she was getting the most horrendous uh, electric bills, utility bills, because of all this kind of stuff. And she heard something very distinctly, like an animal, growl in her ear, which would make me jump a foot into the air, you know? And I'm supposed to be a seasoned paranormal investigator. I, I don't know how Vanessa didn't... Uh, I won't finish that sentence, but I think you know where I'm going with it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> there would have been a brand-shaped uh, puff of smoke, and that would have been it for me. Yeah, absolutely. And so it seems that a lot of the activity had the very definite intent to instill fear, to invoke fear keep her afraid, which it did a pretty good job of doing. Her roommates left, so she had she ended up spending much of her time in there alone. So what do you think was the purpose of the entity or spirit? And and, and as to the true nature of it, we'll we'll have a little bit of a conversation later, but why do you think it was trying to provoke that fear in her? Presumably there's more to it than, you know, I'm I'm bored and I can't manipulate the remote control to see what's on television. Well I think that if you study the paranormal and especially ghosts and hauntings, one finds wherever there is strong, persistent emotion, there tend to be ghosts. Now, that can be negative or positive. When a battlefield is haunted, for example, it's quite understandable. You have a lot of misery, pain, and woe. The same is also true with um, mental asylums, those kind of locations. I think that there is a, a good possibility that it was feeding upon her constant fear, that this negative entity was feeding upon negative energy. And that seems to be borne out by the fact that things did die down a little bit when Vanessa moved out. Interesting. So it it wasn't a uh, an unconscious repeating phenomenon. This was something that was consciously showing up in order to to feed. You believe? Oh, definitely. I mean, there was so, there was a degree of interactivity there that goes beyond the the kind of residual phenomena that are no more intelligent than the images on your TV screen. She would mention that this apparition, this male, would lock eyes with her, was making eye contact which again is something that a, a residual apparition isn't going to do. And uh, one of my fellow paranormal investigators, a lady called Leslie, did some scrying with a mirror uh, in the living room of the cage. And, and she saw and was quite shaken by what she's convinced was the, the head of a man that we think was this same entity dressed in clothes from that era who was staring pretty maliciously back at her and seemed to have some very ill intent. Right, so how is it you came to be involved with the spirits of the cage? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm an Englishman that lives in Colorado, so I'm transplanted, but I get back to the mother country about twice a year. And when I, whenever I do that, I like to try and work in a good haunted location. So I like a working vacation, a busman's holiday, as we'd say in England. And so uh, I'd seen the cage on a number of TV shows, and I thought this is a really interesting location. It's small, so I wouldn't need a big team to control it. I could take just two or three other people and we could, uh, you know, we could investigate uh, this place quite thoroughly over the space of a week. So I reached out to Vanessa and uh, she said, I tell you what, if you want to come and find out for yourself, I'll hand you the keys. Just don't expect me to spend any nights in there with you guys. OK, 
So six months later, that's exactly what happened. I took my fellow investigator, Stephen Widener, who is a Catholic priest as well as a paranormal investigator. Uh, we flew over to meet a couple of my friends from the UK, and the four of us basically moved into the cage for a week. And we threw every piece of investigative equipment and every technique we had into trying to uncover just what was going on. There was one, uh, two things I was really curious about regarding your methods. Uh, the human pendulum, for example, I had never heard of that before. And uh, I would love to, to know a little bit more about that. Sure. And I learned this technique from a fellow investigator, a gentleman called Tyson Lemon, when I was investigating the haunting of Asylum 49 in uh, Tooele, Utah. But essentially, the human pendulum is a technique where you have a volunteer that uh, stands uh, still uh, and as relaxed as possible while still remaining upright and asks any entities present to use their body as a means of communicating. And then uh, you will ask for the, the entities to show you a yes position. And in, in some people, not all, but many, they'll find themselves being pushed or swaying forwards or backwards or left or right to whatever position signifies yes. And then the same uh, request is repeated with no. And then you have a means of answering yes, no questions. And skeptics quite rightly point out that the human pendulum can be explained away by idiomotor muscular uh, movements. In other words, we all have a subconscious desire to please, so our own bodies may actually be making us lean, you know, in in that direction rather than this being general genuine spirit communication. And I found that fascinating, so I wanted to test it. I ended up putting on headphones on one of my investigators and playing the theme song from the Lego Movie, right? Because I can, I can be quite cruel when I want to be. Yeah, so I put this earworm in uh, in place. And the key thing was then that the investigator couldn't hear me asking questions, didn't even know when I was speaking, let alone what question I was asking. And I would stand behind to rule out the possibility of lip reading. And we were still getting some pretty fascinating, intelligent responses. That worked on me also. So I took my turn as the pendulum too. And if, you, uh, if any of your listeners are paranormal investigators, as I'm sure they are, it's an interesting technique to use. For me, the jury's still out as to whether it's genuine spirit communication or purely involuntary muscle movement, or a combination of the two. So it needs to be uh, paired up with other means of gathering data, but nonetheless, it's useful. Right. And if we, for example, if we just take it on faith that it's a legitimate method of, of contact and not uh, idiomotor muscle movement, would, is, do you believe there's any uh, danger in terms of offering yourself up like that? If we, if we are just to accept that we are in fact communing with, with something else, do you think there's any inherent danger in saying you may adjust me as you please. Are you inviting something into your personal space? I think that there's no more danger in that than there is in using a Ouija board or any of the other channels that people use to, to try and communicate with spirits. And of course, that begs the question, Brennan, I'm sure you were going to ask, well, aren't Ouija boards, which we also used in the cage, aren't those every bit as dangerous? And I think a great deal of it comes down to intent. I'll give you an example of a recent experience I had. I flew to England in February to investigate a haunted house called The Hostel in Hull. Now, I took a Ouija board with me, and it so happened to be my wife, Laura's grandmother's Ouija board. And so um, Laura actually said to her grandmother, uh, who, by the way, has passed away quite a few years ago, she said, if you are actually watching over the board, Make sure, please, that Richard isn't bothered by any negative spirits. No harm or danger can come to him. So I took the board with me. We tried to get it to work in this location. Not a thing. The Ouija board obstinately refused to, to work. It would barely crawl. Now, there was also a Ouija board in there. 
in the house that had been left. So same scissors, same environment, same everything. We brought that out and this thing started flying. I mean, we could not shut it up. And we soon discovered that the information coming through this new Ouija board was, shall we say, prankster-ish at best. Um, absolutely very misleading and unreliable. I was trying to puzzle out why the first board hadn't worked. And of course, one of the possibilities is that uh, we'd been very specific. My wife had been very specific that nothing with hostile intent or nothing with um, malicious intent would be permitted to come through it. Right. It, in effect, would have stopped you from from being messed with. Yeah. And I think that a board has to be opened and closed correctly, as does the human pendulum. So start out with some protective measures. State your intent that you're only willing to interact and are only giving permission for spirits with noble intentions to communicate with you. Envision yourself protected by light, uh, all, all of these kind of things. And I know that depending upon the personal belief system of the investigator that's using it, you know, some may use sage and everybody has their own favorite techniques that, that work for them, don't they? As long as those are, are employed, and I think that the, um, the requisite amount of respect is used. I think it's safe most of the time. I'll never say 100% of the time, but the majority of the time. Right. And did you have any luck in the cage with a Ouija board? We did. We actually um, made contact with, well, this of course does assume that you believe with Ouija boards, we are communicating with this kind of entities as opposed to the subconscious of the sitters. Of course. Because there is that school of thought that says what you're actually communicating with is the sitters themselves. You know, our own idiomotor muscular activity is is to blame. If you do accept that you might be communicating with some kind of discarnate entity, we were talking with an entity that claimed to be a shepherd from Priory Lands. I was fully expecting to hear, oh, I, I was a tortured soul that was kept in the cage during my lifetime. And if imagination was at play, that's what you would expect, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that's you know? uh, a fascinating detail and very telling. Yeah, I, I was absolutely ready for, to be hearing from either one of the uh, accused witches or from the jailer, something along those lines. And we got nothing like that. What we got was an entity, as I said, that claimed to be a shepherd on Priory Land. And he said that his name was Redfast, which seemed like a very odd name to me. You know, Redfast is not a modern name for sure. But I did some research afterwards and found that a few hundred years ago, Redfast was the nickname you would have if you were red-faced. Oh, really? You know, so the jolly Santa Claus, red-faced, likes a drink kind of person would often be nicknamed Redfast. And it was something that none of us knew. No, that's a, that's a very obscure piece of information. It was. And again, it's not something I would have expected our subconsciousness to dredge up. So you, you made contact. And again, we don't want to give away too many of the stories. We want people to pick up the book. But I recall reading that a little bit later in the investigation, you were there for a week. Yeah. You had some trouble with your laptop. Yeah, it started behaving very erratically. That's right. Uh, and I still have the laptop. It's, I've written a number of books on it. It's always behaved very well um, before and since. But in the cage, it did something I've never seen it do before. I'm a big believer in keeping a, a log of everything that happens as it happens. So it's, it's my custom on an investigation. I'll hook up my laptop. I'll open up a Microsoft Word document. And I will, I'll tell everybody that's with me. So if anything strange happens, even if it's a completely subjective thing, like a sensation, you thought you heard something, you thought you felt something, I don't care, timestamp it and then log it on this Microsoft Word file, because you know we may be able to cross-reference that later. So we had a good uh, two or three pages of, of log information at the time. I went uh, out 
to meet with Vanessa because she wouldn't come into the cage after dark. And uh, I get a, a text from my colleague saying, are you remotely connected into your laptop? And I said, no, in fact, there's no Wi-Fi in the cage. So it's, it's not connected to the outside world at all, or it shouldn't be. And they said, well, it's doing something strange. We'll, we'll make a recording of it for you. And looking at the video footage, somebody or something somehow is scrolling through that log of mine. So going down line by line as though reading and digesting the contents of the log, scrolling down to the bottom of the page, the third page, then would bounce up to the top and then come back down more slowly as though reading it a second time. And I've never seen the laptop do anything like this before. And I've taken it to a number of locations, both haunted and not. It's behaved perfectly ever since. It behaved perfectly prior to going to the cage. Only saw that odd experience inside there, and I can't explain it. And have you seen, obviously not in your laptop, but in any other electronic equipment, anything that extreme in a haunted location, anything that unusual? Well, the cage is well known for people are advised not to park outside. <laughs> really? It, it's, it's well known for draining car batteries that are parked outside. Uh, there was one instance in which a lady with a brand new BMW had to have the vehicle almost rebuilt from the engine up. BMW could find nothing wrong with it, but the thing just wouldn't behave after it had been parked outside the cage. And most interestingly of all, last year, a driver that was heading along the road suddenly lost control of his car, spun out, and crashed directly into the front of the cage. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, fortunately, he was fine, and the building suffered some uh, minor damage, but is still standing. But again, the cage is at the end of a very long row of houses. You know, In America, they would call them townhomes. Right. And in, in England, they would call them terraced houses. So it, it's in this very long row of homes. You know, The odds of somebody happening to hit the cage uh, are quite interesting. And the driver said that he felt as though the wheel was wrenched out of his hands. Uh, now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But he certainly was not found to be intoxicated or impaired. So there are, there's a fairly long list of, of vehicles and electronic equipment going haywire within that building. So whatever is in the cage is, is still there and, and is resistant to blessings and exorcisms and, and, and I assume everything else you guys have thrown at it? Yeah, Vanessa's had, it, uh, had the place uh, blessed several times. My colleague, Father Stephen Widener, tried uh, his very best also um, to get rid of whatever entity was there and he left some protective measures in place. But by all accounts, the cage is as active as it ever was. And it may well be that whatever energies are there are almost independent of the building or, or are so woven into the fabric of the place that as long as the cage stands, they may well still be there. I don't know. And on that subject, you profess a particular point of view in the book that, I, I, that sort of resonated with me in that you don't particularly believe in demons exactly. You don't believe in the, in the Christian necessarily the Christian mythological definition of demon as a, a thing from hell. Is that right? Yeah. And, and I want to be very clear for your listeners that I've come to learn in life that uh, just because I hold a certain viewpoint, I still respect the theological viewpoints and belief systems of others. Of course. I don't have, I don't really have to respect anybody's belief system, but I do have to respect their right to have it. And I do. So for those who are very much in the vein of, you know, demons and, and those kind of things, that's not my way. It may well be your way. Uh, I, I am open, though, to the possibility of there being uh, inhuman entities, entities that have perhaps not been human at any point in their existence. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the way I tend to look at it. And it may be that demon is a, a convenient label for those kind of beings. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I myself, I'm not religious, but I find that that language is very useful 
in in describing things. Have, have you in your work ever run into something like what is in the cage, a, perhaps a discarnate demon-like entity that maybe never was human? Well, I, I've run into some um, some hauntings which seem to be very mal- uh, malevolent. One that I've been investigating and I'm writing a book about is at 30 East Drive in Pontefract, England. It's known as the Black Monk House. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, and it's one of the most well-known poltergeist cases in, in all of human history. I lived in that house for six days and nights investigating that and have talked to quite a few people that have have done the same thing and had experiences there. And it's it's fairly widely believed that there may be uh, an inhuman entity in that location, something dark, something malevolent. But one thing that I also like to point out is this. Human beings like to ascribe human motivations to things that actually don't have them. So for example, when somebody gets into the tiger cage, the tiger enclosure at the zoo and gets chomped up, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the tiger isn't angry. The tiger isn't malevolent. The tiger isn't evil. The tiger is being a tiger. Exactly. Absolutely. And I, yeah. And I do wonder if there isn't a spiritual equivalent of that, the equivalent of the shark or the tiger, you know, the, the predatory animal. And with our lack of understanding, we might well prescribe motivations to such an entity that it didn't actually have. Absolutely. I, I don't think we'll ever truly understand the scope of what you call it, the unseen world. I, I think it is, uh, it is a part of the natural order that is far beyond our comprehension. And I think we do make those mistakes. We, we attribute human emotions to things which are, to, we are peripheral to these things, if they're aware of us at all. Well, in the same way that viruses and bacteria are peripheral to us, you know, there may well be a hierarchy of things, spiritually speaking. We do like to put ourselves at the top of the tree, don't we, as a species? And it may well be that we're in for a rude awakening someday. Uh, We may find that there are entities far older and and very, very different than us that uh, really wouldn't give us the time of day. And I think I think that'd probably be best for everyone concerned if they just ignored us. Absolutely. And that is, of course, conjecture. It's been an interesting week. I know Steve Huff, if you're familiar with Steve's, Steve's work. I'm not. Uh, uh, well, Steve's been working in ITC for the past six or seven years. Uh, Steve has just very publicly quit and taken down his YouTube channel with uh, a few hundred thousand followers, I believe, because he said that he's been, he and his family are being targeted by malevolent entities as a result of the ITC work that he's been doing. Interesting. So um, ITC, I'm not familiar with the acronym. Yeah. uh, So basically it is uh, a type of communication in which one attempts to communicate with the dead. Oh, okay. So uh, recording EVPs in a sustained way, rather than just going to a location for a couple of hours, doing regular sessions, because a number of researchers will tell you that uh, if they stick to a schedule and they, they take EVPs, they record EVPs in sessions, regularly, same time, same place, same location over and over, they seem to get much stronger results than those that go randomly. And, you know, we'll, we'll try maybe for an hour or two and call it quits. Right. So I see it short for instrumental transcommunication, I believe. And it's the study of, um, of those kind of phenomena. And so he w- had been doing this regularly, giving regularly trying this, regularly performing this, this experiment, mm-hmm. and he started to become harassed. Yeah, that's what he says. And, and I encourage you to go look at, uh, at what he's posted. Type Steve Huff uh, into a search engine. You can see Steve's story. I, I've never met him and uh, I don't know a great deal about him, but I've seen his devices. He was a, a builder of devices, which he said have, have yielded some very good results in the field of paranormal research. I know several friends that use them, although I don't have any myself. 
it's an interesting um, it's an interesting state of affairs to be sure. Uh, and I've investigated some places which are supposed to be very demonic. I mean, one good example is Bobby Mackey's Music World in Wilder, Kentucky. Oh, of which, course. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of that. I have. We had uh, Matt Swain uh, of Ghost of Country Music on the show a little while ago. A number of people, and I think this began with the TV show Ghost Adventures, have claimed that Bobby Mackey's uh, Music World is is essentially a portal to hell. It's so so dark and so so malevolent. It was one of the quietest nights I've ever spent as a paranormal investigator. Really? Mm-hmm. Are you as sensitive as well? Can you feel in addition to uh, sort of using the technology? No, as my wife will tell you, I'm very insensitive. <laughs> um, I used to be a, a very tech-heavy investigator. You know, I would be interested in the numbers. Right. I've drifted a little bit away from that as I uh, as I progress, mainly because I now view locations with the eye of a writer and I'm looking at the narrative. But I have a number of friends that uh, and colleagues that work on the sensitive side and a number that work on the tech side. And I kind of try and weave that all together into a narrative so I can bring a reader along with us for the ride. You know, paranormal research is very boring for people that have never done it. I'd say a good 90 percent of our time is is spent sitting around waiting for the other 10 percent of the time to happen. Right. And and I enjoy writing books where I can cut the boring bits out. That's what they say about drama, isn't it? It's it's life with the boring bits taken out. Uh, and I very much enjoy looking at the story. So when I'm writing about a place like the cage, I'm interested in the human element of, you know, what must it have been felt like? What must it have felt like, I'm sorry, to have been accused of witchcraft and thrown into a prison and then threatened with execution? What would it be like if you had remained behind after your death and you were kept there? What would it be like to live in that kind of place? So... I'll always be an investigator first and foremost, but now I'm also looking at the story, the narrative of the location. And we we like to use that expression, don't we? If these walls could only talk. (laughs) Yes. I really do like to investigate locations where the walls would tell one heck of a tale if they could speak. And in Spirits of the Cage, you've really done that again. Ian loved it. I loved it. And it's, it's a heck of a book. Oh, thank you very much. I really hope that your readers like it. I'm sure they will. The book, again, is Spirits of the Cage, True Accounts of Living in a Haunted Medieval Prison, and it'll be out on September 8th from Llewellyn Worldwide, available everywhere fine books are sold. Richard, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This episode of the Ghost Story Guys has been brought to you in part by CoffeeCrew.com. Welcome back. And that was our interview with Richard Estep. 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 Again, I'm fascinated by the book. I'm, I'm always suspicious of ghost investigations, you know? Yeah, but you know, the thing with Richard was if, when you read the book, I mean, he comes across through the book as easygoing, good sense of humor, like a solid kind of guy you'd want to hang out at the pub with. And I'm so happy that the interview also played that out, that that is actually who he is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's just the kind of guy, he's uh, willing to talk about anything and very diplomatic, but also very no-nonsense, which I think is an English thing. Now, of course, uh, one of the you had a couple questions for Richard. Mm-hmm. You weren't able to make the interview, but uh, one of the questions you had was about the use of Ouija boards. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, we could do an entire episode on Ouija boards because they are such a strong part of popular culture and yet are probably one of the most misunderstood things. Um, people using them, you know, buying them at the game store and stuff like that. That's insane. So, yeah, it kind of caught me off guard. He, he and his team used a Ouija board and they used a couple of them, different results. But he, he says kind of briefly in the book, well, they're okay to use if you use them correctly. But you know, in the interview, he talks a bit about that. But my lingering question then would be, how do you know if you have the right board? Right. And I guess it's a matter of, of course, he talks about, you know, intention and, and right. yeah, yeah, know, clearing yeah. the board and, and using having the proper amount of respect, things like this. Yeah. And I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I've never done a ghost investigation. I, I've never used a Ouija board. Me neither. You know, I, even before I had any interest in the paranormal, I was, a, you know, deeply superstitious Italian who was warned off those things. I and was warned off them as well, big time. Yeah. So I, I, I don't really have any experience with them. Hmm. I, I guess it's one of those things you can only really figure out by doing it. It just was described to me as basically throwing open the front door and going, hey, everybody, come on in. And then you have no control over what's coming through. And that's the scary part. Right. My, I think my take on it is that if you don't have the ability to narrow your focus. Right. Then you shouldn't just, you just shouldn't. Yeah. You know, it, it's like yeah. anything. If you can't, if you can't handle the recoil on the gun. Yeah. Don't fire the That's gun. That's a really good way to put you know, it. If, if you can't use the tool, yeah. don't use it. Now, you were freaked out by something else in the book a little more than just the good old Ouija board. Well, the human pendulum thing kind of freaked yeah. me out. And, uh, of course, he, we talked about that. I asked him, if, of course, if it... Uh, you know, if it, if he felt that it left you any you know open to uh, possession or things like this, yeah. he didn't feel it did. But I, I got to. But in the book, I mean, these these people are thrown around at a couple points. Yeah, they're well, their bodies are kind of jerked yeah. at odd angles, and uh, I mean, you know, that sounds like it might have its appeal. But <laughs> I, I, I just wonder, and it's it it's very to me, it feels very invasive. But as we discussed in the last episode, I'm not a hugger, right? No, so uh, you know, I. I, I'm not a yeah. The, the, the touching thing. But maybe, I mean, I guess you're not in any danger of possession because it's external only. You're not getting them to speak through you or you're not letting them in that, that secondary layer maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, again, he's, he seems to know more than, than either of us and he, he trusted it. So yeah, it's a fascinating uh, thing though. I've never, never actually heard of this. No, I hadn't either. I've never heard of it. You know, I guess it's one of those things where we, we sort of, we're being here on the coast. We, you know, again, we don't do investigations, things like this. We're pretty removed from that community and how that community is developing. Right. The ghost hunting community. Right, yeah. Consequently, it seems like there's a lot of stuff out there we're just not dialed into, a lot of developments. Yeah. And, of course, he mentioned on the interview, he mentioned Stephen Huff, who um, I don't know if you are aware of this. Stephen Huff is uh, he's a paranormal researcher. He does a lot of spirit box stuff. Oh, he, yeah. He, okay. He creates these devices. Yes. And he just recently, in the last couple of days, very publicly quit. Oh, wow. Uh, because he said that he was being harassed. Right. By things from the other side. Wow. That, you know, demonic influence and the devil. And, and we've discussed my opinion. Right. I, I just read something about that. He created something that the voices told him to create. And now they were basically using it to abuse him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And wow. uh, I mean, I got to tell you, disembodied voices tell me to build anything. <laughs> they can go roll their hoop. Well, it's a bit like in our Annabelle episode. If a spirit says, please let me stay. I love you and I'm lonely. The answer is. No. Nope, there's the door. Yeah, there's not today, the devil. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember I I've I've told this story before so on the show, so I'm, I'll make it quick, but I remember doing a ghost hunt in Chicago that we did like as part of a vacation right. uh, Nikki and I took. And they gave us a, they had a ghost box. Yeah. Which is just basically a broken radio. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you ever you ever rented a car, you're not really sure how the stereo works, so you accidentally 
hits scan on the radio and it just keeps yeah. changing stations and you can't figure out how to stop the yeah. goddamn thing. Yeah. yeah, someone figured out how to turn that into a four hundred dollar a pop <laughs> box. I got to use one of those. Yeah. I went I went uh, with a friend on one of her paranormal investigations, strictly as sort of a what stories can I get from it? And it actually um, gave some words in response to what we asked, and it gave some words in the context of the conversation we were having, and it drops them in. And yes, this is all open to interpretation. I get that. But it was interesting, especially for me, who I'm a very kind of verbal, you know, person, language person. And so it was you interesting. You talk a lot, is what you're saying. Shut up. <laughs> Let me talk. And, um, yes, thank so, you. And, uh, and yeah, no, it was cool to see the some of the responses that were tying in and just as cool as that was, it was annoying to get responses that meant nothing like, Oh, are you upset? Mento scum purple. Yeah. Like yeah. what? Come on. So yeah, yeah, who knows? I will say if anyone out there has any experiences with Ouija boards, uh, we would love to hear them. Just shoot us a message. Yeah. at ghost guys at gmail.com or via our Facebook page. We've actually had a lot of activity through the Facebook page recently. A ton. Yeah, of course, we had uh, last weekend, or sorry, not last weekend, but uh, just after putting together the last episode, we had a message from Simon Reynolds and his family. Yeah, they were uh, traveling across uh, from Ontario and were hoping to catch a ghost tour. Unfortunately, I wasn't doing it that night. But um, when we found out, Simon's dad kind of set this up without telling him. Simon turned 13 the night he went on the ghost walk. And so uh, I, Brennan was out of town, but I was able to go down uh, and say hi to him and sign his book. And uh, he had Brennan's book, which I declined to sign because I thought that would be weird. We are also able to give him a Ghost Story Guys t-shirt. So that was pretty cool. That's great. But I should make a disclaimer and say that it was used and it's the only <laughs> way. <laughs> so sorry, Simon. But he seemed... He seemed appreciative. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, I, I was I was bummed that I was out of town. I would love to have been there for that. They were a great family. It was yeah, really cool. That's great. Yeah. And uh, we also had a message. We had a bunch of messages from Melanie, actually. Yeah. Who I think we have not responded to, or at least all the way. I think there might be a couple messages we have yet to respond to. Okay. But, uh, you know, thank you so much, Melanie, for for writing in, and we'll make sure to, to get back to you. Melanie's got some fascinating dream stuff she's been sharing and with us. And we will be doing that dream episode. It's going to be good. Yes. Eventually, we will do the dream episode once we have sufficient stories, which I feel are... Hint, hint. Cough up some more stories, people. That's right. Help us out here. <laughs> uh, we also want to give a shout out to Hillbilly Horror Stories. We were contacted by them the other day. They seem like a really dedicated group of folks, and you should check them out at hillbillyhorrorstories.com. While we're on the subject of listeners... Congratulations to Anthony and Krista, who will be getting married here soon. Oh, cool. Uh, Anthony is the fellow, he came to your book signing. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's getting married this month. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think they're getting married up in Barkerville. Wow. Yeah. Pretty haunted. Pretty haunted. Pretty cool. That's Pretty cool. Awesome. So uh, again, I think they're getting married probably around the 23rd, 24th, thereabouts. Nice. So congratulations to those yeah, guys. Yeah, Definitely. You know, they didn't ask us to officiate, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'm not hurt. I'm not we, hurt. I'm not hurt. And furthering your celebrity, your book has been uh, on the BC bestseller list again. This is week number four. I would love to tell you that it's a consecutive week number four. It is not. It goes on. It drops off. It goes on. It drops off. But hey, we're on an upswing. And last week it was on the bestseller list again. So it's out of 15 books. It is just in BC. I am not delusional. I know what this means, but <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool that it made any list at all, to be honest. I've sold literally tens of copies. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I think it's a bit more than that, but I would, yeah. It's funny, you know, I, I obviously everything we do is, it, it, it's in perspective. Yeah. Like it's, you know, yeah. we, we talk about, uh, we got listeners. I mean, yeah. we are very aware of the fact that it's, it's we're, this is still early days. Yeah. But I, you know, long ago I thought, okay, this is good. 
and I'm not going to apologize for it. Yeah. I'm going to be, you know, if we have listeners writing in, damn it, we have listeners writing in. Exactly. And if we uh, were selling copies, we're selling copies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you feel differently? Come here. Let's fight about it. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Okay, settle down. Settle yeah. down. <laughs> That's not how you keep listeners. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> By punching them. No. Right. no, no, no. I don't want to punch listeners. Oh, I love okay, the good. listeners. Good. Speaking of listeners, did you know we crossed 10,000 downloads? Really? We did. Sweet. We're actually almost at 11. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I know. We're. It's fantastic. It would be awesome if people can share that and kind of, you know, whatever you're doing on social media. Just give us a shout out. Just yeah. give us a link. That's rate, all we rate ask. Rate and review us on iTunes, yeah. Google Play, Stitcher. No, we 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 love the fact that everyone is listening. I mean, being able to being able to have Simon and his family here that that was huge. That was yeah. you know, it's just a it's great to know that there are people out there who are enjoying what we do, having a laugh. You know, the world's a pretty serious place right now, yeah. and it's it's nice to know there's somewhere these folks can go, one more place that they yeah. can just sit back. Yeah. And, and just have some fun. Exactly. All right, folks. On that note, we're going to head out. Ian is abandoning me yet again for yes. the the wilds of the interior. And Alberta. And, oh, God, even worse. <laughs> Where are you off to again? Calgary. My family. Oh, right, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thence to? Uh, somewhere up north. Oh. And I'm hoping there's not a lot of smoke. I'm hoping it's gone by then. Yes, let's hope. Yeah. Well, I'll be here shivering in cold, <laughs> alone and forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> so per usual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, no, nothing's okay. changed. Nothing's okay, changed. <laughs> All right, folks, thanks again for listening. And we will be back in two weeks. Until then, back into the darkness we go. Testing, testing, testing. Make sure this thing is working. I think it is. Oh, yeah. I, for some oh, reason, I... Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's have sex with some haunted dolls. <laughs> That's a specialty channel. Hey, how you doing? Hey, yo. Because I'm Andrew Dice Clay, apparently. <laughs> Lying is hard. Oh, that's very kind of you. Yeah, I know. If they if they carry you, so it's like the podcast. Yeah. If they carry you to the door, <laughs> <laughs> then I'd do it. And they operate your hands yeah. like Geppetto. Yeah, and then feed me because <laughs> I shouldn't have to do that myself. No, no. No. No, you are above such petty concerns. Uh, absolutely. Spooky teeth, spooky teeth. <laughs> Just record anytime. Yeah. Oh, oh, now we're in a hurry. Fuck.